Today is the third Sunday of Advent. We've talked about the uh, four basic themes of Advent are uh, faith, love, hope, and joy. And today we're going to be looking at hope as the subject of the third uh, Sunday of Advent. And hope is a, is a hard thing to describe. I think for most people, if you were to say, uh, what is the difference between a hope and a wish, I pretty much would, would think of it as the same thing. For example, if a child were to say, I wish I get a new PlayStation for Christmas, and I hope I get a new PlayStation for Christmas, that they're pretty much saying the same thing, hope and a wish. But they're not, at least when it comes to the biblical definition of hope. You see, a wish really isn't based on anything except a desire. There's, no, there's nothing that, that you're really basing this on. Whereas a hope is based on something. And in the Old Testament reading that we did today, the, the psalm writer is feeling down. He's saying, you know, why is my soul downcast? And then he says, I will hope in what you did in Jordan. And then he, and he remembers the past. And it's the past events of God's faithfulness that the psalm writer then finds hope in. In the New Testament reading, the hope was based on the person of Jesus Christ. He says people that, that make an oath, they do it on someone that is greater than themselves, and that ends the argument that greater is Jesus Christ. And so you have that case, hope, biblical hope, being based upon the person of Jesus Christ. So in, in our example about the PlayStation, if the child in our story has no real reason to expect a PlayStation, then it's just a wish. He's just kind of wishing into the ether. But suppose the child's parents, and we'll just say here for the sake of just simplicity, and it goes more with the motif, let's say that the, the, the child's father tells him, all right, listen, son or daughter, if you get a ones and twos in school, if you keep your room tidy and you don't fight with your brother, then you will get a PlayStation for Christmas. Now when you ask, and, and say the child does those things, they keep the grades up, keep the room tidy, don't fight with the brother. Then when you ask that child, what do you want for Christmas? And they say, I hope I get a PlayStation. That hope is based upon the integrity of their father following through with the promise that he made that said, if you do these things, then you will get the PlayStation. That is the biblical difference between a wish and a hope. Hope is based on a person or an event a wish is just a desire that's out there. And I found a great video that I want to share with you. It's from this a website called thebibleproject.com. And it's all just one word, the Bible Project. And it's one of the better things out there. You know, the Internet is, is a great resource of uh, things that are good, but it's also, as you know, a minefield of things that are horrible. And uh, this is one of the better things that's out there. And they do everything for free. And as someone that's pretty well-versed in the Bible... I find, this, I find their little videos very good. And I watch them like three or four times. This is probably the fifth or sixth time I'm gonna, I've seen this particular one. And I would encourage you, because the guy talks quite quickly, and he covers a lot of material in five minutes, I would encourage you to go home and to watch this again, and just because it is deep and it is good. It's called Hope, and it's from this thing, thebibleprojectoneword.com. And let's take a look at it.
So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope that people can be reborn to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of glory. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. 
And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. If you're looking for something to donate, charity to donate to, they uh, don't ask for any money for what they do, but they do a tremendously good job. And so uh, that's just something to be aware of. So the well-known love chapter. Woo, someone got ahead of me there. That's good. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it ends by saying this. Now we see but as a poor reflection in a mirror. Uh, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. I think this is a, an interesting little verse to talk about because it brings in three of the elements that we kind of have, uh, expect, uh, that we celebrate uh, during Advent. Faith, hope, love. The other was joy. And I find it interesting because he says the greatest of these is love. And have you ever wondered why? Why is the greatest of these love? Well, the reason is what he's talking about here is that you know, when we have the faith that we will one day rise again in Christ and dwell in the presence of our God, then the faith of being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see will have been fulfilled. Because when we're in the presence of God, we're no longer waiting or longing to be in the presence of God. Faith is fulfilled. And when that faith is fulfilled, the hope that we have or the expectation that we have that we will one day rise again and live a new life in Christ, in His presence, then there's no more need for hope. But love, love, is never, love never has an end to it. Love is kind of blessedly unfulfilled, in a sense. It's fulfilled and unfulfilled. It's blessedly uh, stays in this place of being boundless because the love of God knows no bounds. So that's why it's the greatest. Where faith will one day be fulfilled, one day hope is be fulfilled, love is never fulfilled. In the best of ways, when you say it's never fulfilled, it's not like it's, it's lacking, it just knows no particular end. And this is our hope. This is what we believe in as believers, that we have this hope. And what is the hope? Well, out of Revelation, this is, this is basically the final, the final uh, expectation in the Bible as we have as part of the human journey. And it describes our final place with God in this way. He says, Then an angel showed me a river, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river there stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So there's a lot being said here, but I find it very interesting. I've always found it interesting that at the end, we're in a sense back at the beginning. At the end, we're, we're not in the Garden of Eden so much anymore as we are in the place where we're in the city of God, in the presence of God, the tree of life is there. And, uh, and things have changed. And it says, No longer will there be any curse, the curse being the curse of death. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on his forehead. So like in the Garden of Eden, there's this very close and intimate dwelling with God. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and he will reign with them forever and ever. So the very presence of God will be that which illumines our life. And then the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And they will, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. So if this is our hope, if this is what we are hoping for, then do we really have anything to base it on? Because biblical hope, as I've told you before, biblical hope is based on either the integrity of a person who gives the promise or on the validity of some historical event that we can really stand on and say, I put my trust in this. Do we have anything that we can really look back on? What do we base it on? Because when you look at this, this passage in Revelation, the hope in the passage is basically there will come a time when we are freed from the burdens of sin and death, we are freed from, from the sickness and the pain of living in a fallen world, we're freed from our own selfishness, we're freed from one another's selfishness, and we are able to be in the presence of God. There is no sense of of kind of that barrier between us and God, which even though we have the Holy Spirit that opens up the door, you know, there are times, right, where it feels like our prayers are not going any further than the ceiling and it feels like God is far from us. That will not be happening anymore. The presence of God will be there in a powerful and personal way. Do we have anything that we can look at on the, in our past of uh, people being brought out of the place of enslavement and bondage into a place of promise? Yeah, we do. And the obvious one in the Old Testament is what? Exodus. The whole story of Exodus is about the people of Israel being taken from a place of enslavement and bondage into a place of promise, the promised land. And if you remember the story, the presence of God is very intimate with them. It's very real. He comes as a, a pillar of fire at night. He's a pillar of cloud in the day. He is very much there. In fact, when you read the Moses story, it's kind of shocking how uh, God's presence was very much in this tabernacle that they carried around. And Moses would go in, and they said that he spoke with him as a friend spoke to a friend. It's something that I've never seen, you know, that kind of close contact with God. But that is there. But is that the only one that you see in the Bible? Is that the only story of deliverance? No, the whole Bible is a story of deliverance. God delivers Noah and his family from the destruction of a sinful and corrupt world. They actually talk, they reference that in the video. God delivered Abraham from a pagan understanding of God to a, true understand, a truer understanding of God. You have to remember Abraham, and when we talked about the life of Abraham, we brought this up. Abraham didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the Old Testament, most of it. He didn't have any of the stories other than some of the stories from the early Genesis stories. And so when God comes to Abraham and says, this is who I am, this is what I want you to do, Abraham has to learn that this is not a pagan God. This is a different kind of God. 
And this is why when Moses is told to sacrifice Isaac, did I say Moses? This is when Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, that you don't see Abraham putting up a big fuss. You don't see Abraham saying, oh, no, no, Lord, don't make me do this. Have you ever wondered why does Abraham not put up much of a fuss? Because that's what he expected gods to do. That's what gods did back then. In the, eyes, in the mind of the pagan believers, you sacrificed your children. There was a god called Moloch in the time of Abraham that people sacrificed children to. And so to Abraham, it was not an unusual thing to have a god say, go sacrifice your firstborn. The unusual thing was as, as Abraham was about ready to do it, God stopped him. And it's not, it's not just the story about Abraham's faith that he was willing to do anything for God, but it was also a story of God revealing himself to Abraham. And by bringing Abraham right up to that emotional brink and then stopping him, this, the impact that this God, the true God, doesn't call upon human sacrifice. He will provide the sacrifice is an eye-opener and a world-changer when it comes to understanding God. And, this, and for you and for us, this is kind of a no-brainer. You know, if I were to tell you today, like one of you has a kid, God wants you to sacrifice your kid, hopefully, I would certainly hope, you would say, no, I don't think so. That's not the God I worship. And you could go back to the Bible and you could say, this is not the God I worship. You're crazy. You need to be out of here. But Abraham didn't have that. This was all new to him. God delivered him from this place of a pagan understanding to a true understanding. Then you have Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament, not Joseph in the New Testament, Joseph in the Old Testament. He gets sold by his brothers into slavery, into Egypt. You know that story. And then he eventually works his way up and then gets put in prison and then eventually gets out of that and ends up being the second most powerful person in Egypt. And then from that place of power, he is able to, he, not only is Joseph delivered from prison into a place of power and privilege, but then he's also able to extend help to his family as well. Then we, also, then we have this Moses story, which, we've already, which you know, delivering from the promised land into Israel. You have psalm after psalm that is about deliverance. You have the country of Israel, which in and of itself is kind of a fascinating thing. Even though they're taken into captivity in Babylon, and the nation of Israel is wiped off the map. You know, in the time of Jesus, there was no nation of Israel. It was called Palestine, or it was under different control, uh, because it was gone after the, after the Babylonian exile, when both the kingdom of Israel and Judah fell. And yet, from this place of hopelessness, which they talk about in the video, Isaiah's writing during this time, uh, uh, Hosea's writing during this time, Ezekiel is living in this time, he's living in exile, there is no more place to go back, and yet God still allows a return from Babylon to Jerusalem. If you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's about the rebuilding of the temple. It's been destroyed. And then, of course, you have Jesus. And Jesus comes and stands in for broken humanity. He becomes accountable for humanity's sin. He delivers those who trust in the crucifixion and the resurrection because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ delivers us from sin and death into hope and into life. And then you've got, even within our own history after the Bible, the church was persecuted for many, many, for years 
after, the, after you read the events in the book of Acts. But even within the book of Acts, the church is delivered. One of its persecutors that the church is delivered from is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a guy named, he, at first he was known as Saul. And Saul was a terror to the church. He was so terrifying to the church that even after his conversion and spending time in Damascus ministering, when he comes to Jerusalem, the people in the church of Jerusalem are afraid of him. And the disciples decide to just move him quietly off to this town called Tarsus and just say, you know, you're a bit too hot to handle. We believe in your conversion, but the memory of what you were to the church is too strong, and so they just basically move him off to Tarsus and it's not until a friend named Barnabas comes and delivers Paul from exile, in a sense, to Antioch. And that's where Paul becomes the Apostle Paul that we know and love because he is sent out by the church in Antioch, not the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was like, mm. The church in Antioch is the one that sends him and a guy named Barnabas out and begins the missionary journeys. When you read the Bible, those are the letters that are being written to the churches that he established. And it goes on and on and on. You have the corruption. You know, the, the church has eventually made the official church of Rome, which sounds great at first. It's a deliverance from persecution into a place of tremendous favor. Constantine and Constantine's mother poured money on the church in order for them to build churches and to, and to take bones from places like Jerusalem and, and end up bringing them. Uh, eventually, they find their way to the cathedral in Cologne where they claim they have the bones of the three wise men. But that's the claim. And, uh, and all that came from money being poured on the church after Constantine becomes the emperor. Sounds great. And it was great for a while. But then the church got corrupted by greed and power because once you're not persecuted anymore and you're kind of on the top, human nature kicks in and we become greedy and we become powerful. So then the church needs to be delivered again. And the church has been delivered several times throughout the centuries. One of the most famous ones, of course, is the Reformation, where you have this kind of reimagining, rethinking of the church, a place that has to be reformed. And then you see revivals taking place in different places around the world over the last centuries. Finally, it comes down to the place of you. There was a time when you were a different person than you are today. You were caught up in certain things. You were caught up in, in believing and hoping in things that are vain and lies and, and things that the world tells you you need to put your hope in. And you were taken and delivered from that into the place of eternal hope and life. So, I want to ask you, do we have anything to base the hope found in Revelation where we're told that there's a place one day where the river of life runs as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city? Do we have any reason to hope that there's a place where on each side of the river stands the tree of life, bearing 12 crops in its fruit, yielding its fruit every month, for the leaves of the trees or for the healing of the nations. Do we have any reason to hope that there'll be a time where we can live in a place where there is no longer any curse, the curse being the curse of death, sin and death? Do we have any reason to hope that there'll be a place where the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will see Him? See Him. And they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. Not that the night is a bad thing, but it's, that place of darkness is gone. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light. He who is light will be dwelling in such a way that we won't need any other type of light. His glory will be the light. 
and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. In other words, none of this should be a surprise to us. The prophets have been telling us about this hope ever since the Old Testament was around. Jesus is the very model of this hope in that he who comes, the word of God made flesh, dies for our sins. But to prove that he is trustworthy and to prove that everything he said about himself is true, we have the resurrection. We have a historical, physical event. And the Bible makes a big deal out of showing that this is a physical resurrection. Jesus comes in, and one place, he wants some fish to eat. Not because he's hungry, because he wants to show them he's not a ghost. That this is, a, this is not just a figment of their imagination. It's not just them going through some psychosis. It's not a ghost. It's the resurrected Lord. And the book of Romans tells us this is the same thing that we can expect for ourselves. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of a new creation. And we are in that as well, given our trust in him. So do we have a reason for this hope? Do we have historic reasons for this hope? Yes. Do we have a person to put this hope in? Yes. Do we have a good reason to have this hope? Yes. And if you don't have the hope, then you have to ask yourself, well, then what do I really believe about Jesus? What am I hoping for? Is Jesus just here to make me a better person? Or is there something more to it? And let me tell you the answer to the question, there is something more to it. It's not just found on this earth. The more isn't just found in, in, in some kind of social engineering taking place that's going to make the world a utopia to live in. Let me tell you, man, I have no hope in human politics and ideas making things better. The only thing the Bible promises us is it's going to get worse. And then God will intervene. And I think sometimes Christians are like so freaked out when things start going down the road that we were promised it was going to go down. We don't have to be in fear, but we should also be, we shouldn't be surprised. But we still are people of hope. But we need to have our eyes open because the truth is the journey of deliverance always comes at a price. And when you read the scriptures, there is a price. You know, the price for release from Egypt. You read the whole story. The, the, the price wasn't paid when they left the slavery of Egypt. The price was paid when they went into the desert and they stopped listening to their God. That's when the price started being paid. And they, and they were too afraid to take the promised land. That's when the price was paid. Then they walked around the desert for 40 years and a generation had to die off before they were able to take the promised land. Deliverance comes at a price. When the people were brought back from exile from Babylon back into where they were able to rebuild Jerusalem, it wasn't as though they didn't have opposition. You read the stories, there were people who had been left behind that weren't taken into exile, who used and took the lands and whatever that had been left behind, and they weren't all that happy when the people came back from Jerusalem. In fact, they fought against them. They tried to get the government, the, the king that allowed them to return, to get angry with them and turn against them. It comes at a price. And Jesus' own death and resurrection tells us that the, forget the, for the wages of sins are death, that's true. And the death that was, that was used to bring us to a place of deliverance was the very death of the Word of God made flesh. He who had no sin was made sin for us. And he was, he, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And he's the last one that has to be in that place of death for spiritual reasons. But then you look at the church throughout history. There have been times of deep persecution. The Apostle Paul used to be a persecutor. I've already mentioned Rome was a persecutor. The blood of the martyrs water the seeds of faith is a very well-known and old saying that takes place throughout Christian history. The blood of the martyrs water the seeds of faith. So we need to be aware that while we have this hope, this deliverance comes at a price. The ultimate Christ price was paid by Jesus Christ. And that is the place where we need to invest ourselves, where you should invest yourself. And the reason why it's so hard, why, the, why it comes at a price, is because the business of delivering one from evil is a far harder and bloodier business, business than we realize. We are more entwined into the things of sin and the evil it causes. We're so deeply entwined to it, we don't even realize some parts of our lives that are affected by it. It's really not until, as that song says, when we're on the other side, we shall see things clearly, you know, that, that we begin to understand really how deeply entwined we all were and how much we are indebted to the grace of God who let his grace of forgiveness flow into our lives even in the areas that we were unaware of because he's our God and this is what he does he delivers from evil so we have a hope and even if we go through a difficult time and we're going through a little bit of a difficult time now but even if we go through that big difficult time when the antichrist is declared and all the stuff really goes bad we don't need to fear because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world and the world may seek to devour and destroy, but our God is greater, and our hope is greater. And if we can keep our eyes and trusting in who Jesus Christ is and just move forward with our eyes on him, no matter what's swirling around us, the times of the prophets, it was conquest that was swirling around them. It was death and destruction. In your life, it might be something else, but if you keep your eyes upon him, then you will live in a place one day where hope is fulfilled, where faith has been rewarded. And the only thing that is left to continue to grow and explore and to rejoice in is the everlasting, limitless love of God. That is your hope if you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have given us this to, to rely on, this place of hope, this place of trust. And it's not just based on fantasy. It's not just based on an idea. It's based on a person. And we thank you that you've given us these solid uh, moments in history to look back upon. Say, there is the hand of God then. And if he is faithful then, he'll be faithful tomorrow. And I look forward to that future. And Father, wherever this takes us personally, because there have been many, many believers whose blood has been spilled as this deliverance takes place, so wherever we end up personally, who knows? But we know that at the end, we will all be together in your presence. That you will be in that place where we live in that place of the resurrection. And we live in the place of, as described in Revelation there, where there is no more tears and sickness has passed away. And there is no more death. And we look forward to that time. Trusting you to be our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.